2020, the U.S. technology company Apple held its Worldwide Developers Conference, an event at which they typically lay out some details about next steps, especially in terms of what folks who make software and accessories for their products can expect in the coming years, along with more broadly applicable updates about new operating system functionality, user interface upgrades, and the like. At this particular WWDC, The Apple higher-ups confirmed a rumor that had been shuffling around the tech news circuit for quite a while, but which had been, up till that point, a bit uncertain. Apple announced that they intended to shift their Mac computer hardware away from Intel chips to instead utilize their own ARM-based designs, ARM being another chip designer. This is similar to the move they made back in 2006 when they dumped power PC processors which was a type of processor architecture co-developed by Apple, IBM, and Motorola in favor of Intel chips, which were the default for the rest of the personal computer industry at that point. But Apple had stubbornly stuck with their outsider format until it became clear that their architecture lacked a competitive future, while Intel was blazing ahead, which made Windows-based machines more powerful than Macs, both in that moment, and if they didn't change over time, it was suspected, for the foreseeable future as well. This latest move is similar to that previous one, in that Apple found itself staring down the barrel of a future diminishment in their ability to compete, and thus decided to make a costly, difficult, and time-consuming shift to another chip architecture which back then, and with this new changeover, will require changes to most of the software that runs on Mac devices, creating no small amount of difficulty for developers, though that difficulty seems to be perceived as a necessary sacrifice by the folks at Apple. In this new 2020-era case, Apple already has the next architecture, or the general framework for it, at least, in place. They've been using custom-designed chips in their mobile products, Since the iPad and iPhone 4 were released back in 2010, the A4 processor in those devices were the first Apple-designed chips, based on designs licensed from the aforementioned ARM, which is a Japanese-owned, UK-based semiconductor company that has more or less taken over the mobile chip sub-industry since Intel vacated the space a few years back, not having been able to compete. These chips, then, are predicated on a standard design produced by this very well-known mobile CPU and graphics processing unit developer, but are then customized by Apple to gain them an advantage that their competitors, especially those making Android devices, have trouble matching. Apple can essentially design all their hardware to work perfectly with their software, benefiting from co-design optimizations while Android devices generally can't do the same because there are so many different types of devices being made by so many different companies that make use of the Android operating system. The monolithic, single-perspective, walled garden that Apple has built for its apps and software then benefit, according to their own standards at least, from the ability to control more parts of the design, development, and production process of its accompanying hardware. To a certain degree, most software can be made to run on 
any suitable hardware these days. But if you can align the two perfectly and design them in parallel, you can achieve outsized benefits that are tricky to match. What's especially interesting in this case is that, as I mentioned, ARM is primarily known for their mobile chips, and that's how Apple has used them thus far. This new move, though, indicates that Apple plans to use similar chips, or at least a similar chip architecture, for devices like laptops and desktops as well, which are typically optimized for other metrics. In the case of desktops in particular, raw power tends to be a major priority for professionals working in graphics and processing-heavy fields. Apple seems fairly confident that this won't be an issue, though, having committed their company to transitioning all of their Macs over to the new chip architecture within just two years, leaving Intel behind and going through, and making their developers and users go through, all the tiny and significant headaches that can arise from such a transition. They've been easing the impending blow of all this change by assuring users and developers that the gains in capability will be worth the transition, and that having more control over their internal hardware in this way will pay dividends in what they can accomplish longer term. For their part, Intel won't be destroyed by Apple no longer working with them. Apple only accounts for around 2-4% of Intel's total sales, but the departure and the implication that the departure is due to Intel no longer being able to compete in this space could significantly damage Intel's reputation as a chip developer, which could lead to some interesting changes in how they operate, but could also affect their position within the larger global chip industry. What I want to talk about today are computer chips, how control over such chips is increasingly vital for corporations, but also for governments and entire economies, and how a particular chip manufacturer located in a contentious part of the world may be at the center of a burgeoning international crisis. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. In August of 2018, U.S. President Donald Trump signed the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2019 into law, and with it, a provision that banned the use of equipment made by Chinese tech companies ZTE and Huawei for U.S. federal government purposes due to alleged security concerns. The provision was presented as a way to counter the potential threat that Chinese-made 5G and other types of fundamental tech infrastructure could pose by giving the Chinese government back doors they could use to hack U.S. energy grids or telecommunications services by providing them means to spy on or shut down vital components of the civil and private sectors, or by simply giving them economic leverage over the U.S. government, allowing them to, for instance, threaten to not upgrade systems when necessary, or not provide replacement parts when needed if the U.S. doesn't give them what they want during a trade deal. Arguably, this is a potential issue when dealing with any company from anywhere in the world, because there's always the chance that the government legislating around the corporation in question could pass some kind of law that prevents that company from working with another country in the future, resulting in a similar issue. But because China's companies, even their ostensibly private companies, 
have to work so closely with the Chinese government by law. It's not a huge leap of logic or an empty concern to think that they may be incentivized by their government at some point to use their position to the Chinese government and or military's advantage. There doesn't seem to be any real evidence that ZTE or Huawei have managed to do this, at least on a large scale up until this point, but the threat potential is there, though the rationale for this particular response to that potential is thought to have been about 20% genuine concern about those potential threats, and probably 80% posturing, meant to give the U.S. government leverage in the ongoing, and back at this period in late 2018, quite heightened and intense U.S.-China trade war. The pressure on Huawei in particular was increased in mid-May of 2019, when they were added alongside 70 other foreign subsidiary companies and entities, to a Department of Commerce list of entities that were apparently illegally dealing with the Iranian government. And being on that list meant that U.S. companies were not allowed to do business with them without first acquiring an exception license from the government. Many tech companies, including Google, had to cease working with Huawei, which resulted, perhaps most dramatically and headline-grabbingly, in Google's Android updates, apps, and marketplace no longer functioning on Huawei devices, which was fairly crippling for sales of their, by all indications, quite solid, very competitive, and at times, top-of-the-line smartphones and other devices. Soon after, Huawei released their own in-house replacements for some of these apps, but most reviews have decried them as being a fairly sad step down from what folks using phones made by companies that are still able to use Google Apps and services are able to enjoy. President Trump implied later in 2019 that he might pull back on some of these restrictions in the near future. But in mid-May 2020, the U.S. Department of Commerce extended the restrictions to include bans on the use of hardware or software of U.S. origin by Huawei, even if the manufacturing or distribution of these products is done overseas, which filled in a loophole in the previous ban that was, until this point, heavily utilized by some facets of the smartphone and related devices industry, especially in regards to microchips and other tech components used inside of such products. That brings us to the article that I would like to unspool today. This piece comes from Reuters, and it's entitled, Taiwan Minister Says TSMC Has Offset Lost Huawei Orders. TSMC, short for Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, is a multinational corporation that does business worldwide, is the largest company in Taiwan, and is the world's most valuable semiconductor company. They bring in somewhere in the neighborhood of $35 billion a year, are worth about double that in total assets, and they employ nearly 50,000 people at their facilities in Taiwan, Shanghai, Singapore, and in Washington State in the United States. They also have offices in a half dozen countries outside Taiwan. They are a big deal in this space, and arguably, by some metrics at least, the biggest deal when it comes to the fabrication of semiconductors. What that means in practice is that, using Apple and the chips used in their iPhones as an example, you might have ARM design the blueprint for a particular type of chip. Apple will then license that chip design 
and then customize it for their needs, but they will then send that final design that they've customized to a company like TSMC to actually make it. TSMC is not anywhere near the only company in this line of work, and depending on where you live in the world, there's a chance you've heard of one of their competitors that produces their own branded products. Companies like Intel, Micron, Hitachi, ST Microelectronics, Texas Instruments, Samsung, and Bosch, just to name a few. All have their own semiconductor foundries, and therefore their own capabilities when it comes to producing chips for themselves and for others. Even Amongst those sizable and well-known competitors, though, TSMC is a pretty big deal, partly because of their capacity, which is massive, and partly because of their capabilities, including being the first company to produce 7 nanometer chips at market scale back in 2017, about a year before their second-place competitors. And being able to produce powerful chips at smaller and smaller sizes is what allows our devices to get smaller, lighter, and thinner, while also becoming more powerful over time. One of the first chips to use this 7 nanometer process, for instance, was the Apple A12 Bionic, which was used in the Apple XS and Apple XS Max devices, alongside the XR model iPhone and a couple of upgraded iPads. This Reuters story refers to that May 2020 announcement when it was declared that companies using US tech could no longer work with Huawei. TSMC, like most companies, at some point in their process, uses U.S. tech, and thus they had to stop doing business with Huawei, which, in addition to making reportedly very nice devices, is one of the largest and wealthiest tech companies in the world. Shortly after the announcement, TSMC claimed that they would be able to fill the gap between their production capacity and available orders without too much trouble. And as it turns out, by mid-June, they had fulfilled that claim. No longer able to do business with Huawei, but doing just fine. Reportedly, working with other non-regulatorily targeted Chinese tech companies, but also, reportedly, U.S. companies like Apple. Which makes a lot of sense if you consider how many more small, efficient, powerful chips Apple is going to need in the coming years due to that decision to design more of their own chips. This story is more than just a tech industry story, though. It's also a diplomatic one, and potentially, at some point, maybe even a military one. To understand why, consider that not all resources and products are considered equal when it comes to the things they enable and the context in which they exist. If you look back at the 20th century, oil was a fairly vital product that, though technically bought and sold like any other product, was regulated quite differently, stockpiled strategically, and at times denied to enemies, or at least attempts were made to deny potential future enemies sufficient stockpiles of oil. Oil was, and remains today, though arguably with somewhat less potency than before, the thing that fuels all the other things. It makes technology run, it makes cars go, it powers battleships and armored personnel carriers. The economy requires oil to function. The military requires oil to function. This is why, when a newly formed OPEC denied the United States and other wealthy countries access to oil because of their support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War, the consequences stateside were fairly devastating. It led to rationing, emergency declarations and regulations, bursts of panic and rioting, and currency devaluations. 
it so startled and scared the United States that the country set up brand new agencies, built new stockpiles, and changed all kinds of laws, all with the intention of avoiding that kind of lack, that diminishment of the assumed steady supply of oil ever again in the future. Other substances and products have played this role throughout history as well. Saltpeter, for instance, was fairly fundamental to military but also mining and agricultural efforts in the years leading up to World War I. And electricity is often considered to be a fundamental resource that, if denied to a potential enemy in a military or non-military situation, would devastate that enemy's infrastructure, social stability, economic potential, and in some cases, would even endanger the lives of their citizenry and soldiers. All of which is to say, although we buy and sell oil and electricity, these are different resources than apples or wallets or scooters or other sorts of products that we buy and sell. Some analysts and experts have proposed that the new oil, the new fundamental necessary must-have-or-else resource in the information and post-information age, is data, and the hardware required to attain, process, and use that data. By some estimations, this means that software, and more specifically souped-up software that some people might broadly call artificial intelligence, though importantly, we're not talking about the general kind of artificial intelligence that does not exist and that acts like a human, but smarter. We're talking about just very powerful types of software. That kind of data-focused intangible good is the new fundamental resource that we cannot allow enemy combatants to stockpile, and we cannot allow them to potentially keep us from having those intangible goods. Others contend that the physical goods that allow us to collect and utilize this data is the actual metaphorical oil here, and thus advanced microchips are the real, true, vital resource. This assertion has been backed up at times by the actions of governments worldwide, but perhaps especially the U.S. government, which in the past has disallowed video game companies from selling their consoles in other countries because the chips contained within PlayStations could be plucked out and repurposed as powerful guidance chips for missiles by the governments and militaries in these other countries. Whichever side eventually wins that chips or software debate, it's probably safe to say that semiconductors, that is, microchips, have become a valuable resource, not just because they allow us citizens to buy fancy new computers and phones whenever we like, but because access to such advanced hardware amplifies our and our government's capabilities when it comes to utilizing data, building more technologically sophisticated weaponry, and overall standing a better chance of having the upper hand in any potential future conflict. And that assumption is predicated on the fact that in many cases, such advantages don't emerge overnight with one new batch of weapons ordered. It's a long-term thing. Technological superiority is a process, and that means if you can achieve it over your potential foes, that advantage will grow over time, with your lead increasing faster than their pursuit. So having a reliable source of advanced components is important because if you ever lose that flow of resources, it would be like losing your flow of oil. Sure, you might still have some in the tank of your tank, and you have some stockpiles here and there just in case, but that doesn't mean that you're ready for a conflict, and that doesn't mean that you're primed for ongoing and future growth. 
the supply chain is just as, if not more, important than what you have on hand at any given moment. I bring this up because in this case, one of the biggest, most capable, and highest-tech semiconductor manufacturers, TSMC, is located in Taiwan, a country of 24 million people or so located off the coast of China, just east of Hong Kong and north of the Philippines, and especially important for this conversation, a country that China claims as its own, despite the local government having its own currency, passport, stamps, internet domains, military, and constitution, which lays out the fundamentals of a separate government structure that includes, among other things, a democratically elected president. The situation between the Republic of China, which is the official name for the nation that primarily exists on the island of Taiwan, and the People's Republic of China, which is the mainland Chinese government, is, as you might imagine, somewhat complicated. The Taiwanese government is reliably under threat by the mainland Chinese government, often opting to keep their perceived independence on the down-low, lest the mainland Chinese government decide to make an example of them, asserting more direct and concrete control over Taiwan in one of many possibly violent or coercive ways. What's playing out here, then, with Huawei and their sudden lack of chips from TSMC is representative of a larger concern held by members of the Chinese government, corporations, and foreign bodies that want to avoid conflict. If the regulations currently impacting Huawei were to be expanded to other Chinese companies, or if China decides that Huawei is sufficiently important to their government's future, Huawei is massive and their connections to the Chinese government are fairly hand-in-glove, lots of engagement and collaboration there. This could spiral into a more direct conflict that nobody really wants, but which neither the US or China could afford to back down from because of that aforementioned reliance that they both have on these resources, alongside the desire to save face on the international stage. The fear is that if regulations expand in scope, or Huawei takes on an increased veneer of importance in China, then China might either coerce through some kind of trade war or other threat, or invade Taiwan in order to force them to make their advanced chips for Chinese companies once more, perhaps just taking the means of manufacturing those chips and getting rid of those currently in charge of and owning the company. This sounds like a pretty wild speculation, I know, but it's rumored that TSMC has actually rigged its manufacturing facilities with explosives just in case China one day decides to invade. The idea being that they want to deny their enemy the benefits of that advanced infrastructure should an invasion actually happen. But it's possible that China could apply other types of pressure instead, rather than direct military pressure, in an attempt to accomplish the same thing via less violent means. And it's tricky to plan for every possible type of economic and military leverage that they might apply. Of course, if China did succeed in twisting TSMC's arm, or otherwise taking the means of production of those chips, it's possible that the United States could respond by attempting to deny them those newly claimed resources. And this is especially true if China decided to use most or all of that production volume for itself, which would mean fewer advanced chips available for the U.S. and the rest of the world, in which case the U.S. might try to take out these facilities with missiles or some other similar but less overt approach. In both cases, wanting to keep China from having access to that vital resource 
at the United States' expense. If I can't have it, neither can you, essentially. And importantly, this could also happen the other way around, with China destroying the fabricators overtly or covertly to keep their opposition from getting them if they can't have them either. To ameliorate potential threats surrounding this limited source of this vital resource, both sides of the larger conflict, the U.S. and China, have been investing in their own homegrown, more tightly controlled microchip infrastructure. The U.S. has primarily been trying to lure companies from other countries, including Foxconn from China and TSMC from Taiwan, to build chip foundries in the U.S., though with very mixed results at this point. Foxconn was able to get massive tax incentives from local government coffers in Minnesota, but as of late June 2020, has only provided a handful of jobs in the area and built a few empty buildings, leading some to label the whole ordeal an expensive bait-and-switch by the company at the expense of the American taxpayer, while others, like a newly reported TSMC facility that's meant to be built in Arizona and to open sometime in 2024, is being promoted as being capable of producing 20,000 silicon wafers per month using the company's 5-nanometer process. But there are already rumors of another set of tax incentives being granted to this company for their willingness to build stateside, and the 5 nanometer process, though state-of-the-art today, will be a bit outdated by the time the facility is set to open, around 2024. Three nanometer chips are expected to arrive in 2022, so there's a chance that the chips eventually made at this Arizona facility will be two generations out of date by the time it's finally built. China, for their part, have been investing in their own local TSMC competitors, including Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation, or SMIC, which is the largest semiconductor foundry company in China. At the moment, SMIC is kind of looked down upon in the international tech industry. They have a reputation for doing kind of a shoddy job and having a lot of quality control issues, and for only providing outdated options. As of late 2019, they were only just beginning to ramp up production of 14 nanometer chips, which puts them well behind TSMC and other competitors. Though notably, these chips are still widely used for many applications, so they're mostly behind in the quality control and high-tech sense, not in the sense of capacity and potential future capability. It's thought That China's long-term plan here is to do what they did with Huawei, using government resources including espionage, but also money and influence, to bulk up what is ostensibly a private company faster than would be possible elsewhere, lacking those government connections, in order to make SMIC competitive with similar entities around the world over a far shorter time frame than most would suspect possible. Current suspicions from folks in the know within this industry put SMIC a decade behind companies like TSMC, and this is an industry that's well known for being unforgiving to those who fall behind, just like with the oil resource metaphor. If someone gets a head start on you, they tend to increase their lead over time, rather than maintaining a steady lead. That said, China has shown before with Huawei and other companies, that they are very good at pulling out the stops to grow their companies quickly when they need to. So it's a fair bet that if they do take this path, SMIC will grow faster than current estimates posit, and thus very well may close the gap in the relatively near future. All of this is happening 
too, within the larger context of economic and social upheaval, in part because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and in part because of existing and growing international and intranational conflict, including ongoing trade war disputes between the U.S. and China, diplomatic pushbacks from the European Union, and nearby Asian nations that worry about China's growth and increasing aggressiveness, and the recent seeming failure, or at least underperformance and slowdown, of the Belt and Road Initiative, upon which the Chinese government was pinning many of its future plans. These variables make the relationships involved here a little more volatile and fragile, and have upended a lot of what we thought we knew about how this would play out when this particular facet of the larger U.S.-China rivalry kicked off several years ago. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a bit of a strange one. It's called Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. And I say that it's a bit strange because it's definitely a genre-straddling book. It's a bit science fiction-y, but very character-driven. And I don't want to give too much away, so I think I'll limit my description of this book to what was said in a review by another author who I like, Charles Strauss, about this book when he reviewed it. He described it as, quote, "...lesbian necromancers explore a haunted gothic palace in space," end quote. And that is actually a very apt description. It personally took me about a chapter to actually get into it to figure out what was going on and why I should care about these characters. But after that, it was a hard-to-put-down sort of read. So if you enjoy lesbian necromancers, haunted gothic palaces, and or space, this might be the book for you. Consider picking up a copy of Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast by searching for Brain Lenses wherever you get your podcasts or by going to brainlenses.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere else. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.